0: Annie Bouchou, hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Cynthia Connolly, director of programming here, and proud member. It's Thursday, January 13th, and I am pleased to bring to you today's virtual City Club Forum. It is our first forum of 2022, part of our Authors and Conversation series, as well as our Sustainable Northeast Ohio series. We are here in partnership with Holden Forest and Gardens, part of the National Endowment for the Arts Big Read Northeast Ohio at Kent State University. In Native American communities, you may hear us say, that's good medicine. It's a phrase used to mark that feeling you get when you connect so deeply to something, it moves your spirit, like the first giggle of an infant, or the sound of steady waves hitting the shore at sunset. Reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, to me, and for many, was good medicine. Robin Wall Kimmerer was raised by strawberries. She is a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, an author, a botanist, a mother, a Sunni distinguished professor, teaching professor of environmental biology, and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. In her book, Robin describes how she surveys her students on their perceptions of human interaction with land. She found that nearly all her students believed humans and nature are a bad mix. They also couldn't even imagine what a beneficial interaction might look like. So what has led to this rising pessimism of humans' relationship with land? One could easily point to unchecked pollution and last summer's code red warning to humanity by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But Robin's book asks all of us to reclaim our knowledge of ecology and reciprocity to collectively move forward towards sustainability. Also joining Robin here today is Jill Kosky, President and Chief Executive Officer of Holden Forests and Gardens, which consists of the Holden Arboretum and Cleveland Botanical Garden. Jill grew up in the shadow of a towering white oak. And now she works to connect people with the wonder, beauty, and value of trees and plants. If you have any questions for Robin or Jill, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. Robin and Jill, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. Yes. So I purposely and intentionally mentioned, Robin, that you were raised by strawberries and Jill, you under the the shadow of a white oak. And I, I put that in there intentionally because, you know, that is one of the core things, Robin, in your book, is how we associate ourselves with what has brought us to be. And I know In your book, one of the more formative things that I got from it was a personal experience, too, is your uh, kind of relationship with the higher education system. And when you said that you were raised by strawberries and when they asked, you know, why do you want to be a botanist? And you responded that you wanted to learn why asters and goldenrod look so beautiful. And he said, oh, that's not what botanists concern themselves with. So we see this time and time again, um, with indigenous knowledge being really undermined, especially for our young adults who are kind of reclaiming this knowledge or or have been raised with this knowledge. And it can be really discouraging. So my question for you, Robin, is how did that impact you as a student and has higher education improved since when you were a young adult?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Miigwech for that question, thank you. Um, And it brings me, right back to that moment cynthia i i think it it is was sort of one of those turning points in my life when i realized that the indigenous perspectives that i was bringing to college were not welcome there they were not even Visible there to think about plants as as companions and teachers, and indeed like makers of, of beauty. To think about plants as 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 persons as having agency, and you know what did that do to me as a as a as a young aspiring botanist? Boy, it sent me into the corner. Um, uh, it made me very quiet. It made me think and doubt that all that I knew might not might not be valid, you know, because here I was at the university, and they were saying that it didn't belong there. And it took me a a long time to recover from that. Um, Fortunately, the plants got me through, because Mm -hmm. what, I just wanted to know everything about plants. And, and it's true that the things that the university had to teach about plants were not necessarily the things that brought me there. But nonetheless, I just wanted to know about the details of photosynthesis and 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 plant growth so um but it took me a, a long time and other pivotal experiences to come back from that is it better now absolutely absolutely is it um the door is open the door is open for incorporation of indigenous ways of knowing into sustainability sciences, into conservation, um, for sure. And um, it, this has been, you know, the work of so many of our people to to bring native knowledge to the fore. And um, yeah, I'm I'm happy to say that I have a whole cohort of amazing native students who are not sitting in the corner thinking my knowledge doesn't belong here. They are, in fact, thinking. Everybody needs to know about this and people are listening.
0: Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that's another thing, too, is, you know, everyone needs to know about this. And uh, we may get to this a little bit later, but when you had talked about um, the Thanksgiving address that was given um, in the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy, that is one of the first things that is recited. Before anything that they do. I mean, it was recited at my wedding. My husband is Onondaga, uh, which is one of the tribal nations in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And uh, I remember you saying that you had, you asked Oren Lyons whether or not you should include it in your book. And, and he said that, yeah, <laughs> if more people had heard this and the reasoning behind why we do it, we'd be in a much better place as a people. Um, and is that kind of one of the reasons why uh, you you put your book out there for everyone?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I love the way, Cynthia, that you framed this conversation about good medicine, because essentially that's what Oren was saying, right? Is that this way of thinking, this, the, the indigenous worldview ethical framework is medicine for a broken relationship with, with the land. And that, um, that if you are in possession of the medicine, you don't keep it to yourself. It, 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 it needs to be shared.
0: Great. And for those of you wondering, I will say that the APA citation style book, the 7th edition, does have a section on how to cite Indigenous knowledge. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but it it does exist. Um, And so I I do want to say with that is how do non-Natives incorporate Indigenous knowledge into the research? Is it something that they should be comfortable doing?
1: Yes um one of the things that we really are 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 trying to do with our own students and more broadly is to address exactly that question so that indigenous knowledge becomes visible at all stages of of research there is a um I'll call it an unfortunate history of of relationship between universities and researchers and 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 uh uh, indigenous nations that has been sort of extractive of of the research being designed by folks in the university and native people being and lands being the subject of that of that research. Whereas what we're aspiring to is co creators of of that work um, from the very start, co creating. The questions, you know, that's why intellectual diversity matters so much, not just how we do the science, but what it is that we choose to investigate and what are the assumptions underneath our, our research agenda. So um, absolutely. And and folks from from land trust to federal state governments are are there is a real move toward working in a way which is inclusive and just that incorporates Indigenous ways of knowing without appropriation and and gives them the appropriate uh, sovereignty and respect that they deserve.
0: And data sovereignty, too, I think is another trending topic Absolutely. that's happening right now uh, for Native America. And my question for you, Jill, is I know in our conversations we had mentioned that this is uh, this is a community issue, right? And not one relegated just to academic scientists, et cetera. And my question to you is how can higher education institutions and organizations like Holden uh, Parks and Gardens and, you know, uh, the other organizations that you're involved with, how can that play a role in decolonizing education
2: you know I think I'll start first uh, you know you mentioned that that oak tree and with um, Robin strawberries and I think that I start from a place of I'm not a, I'm not a scientist that's not my my schooled background and what I think um Something that I, I think about is how I ended up in in this current position that I'm in, working always in organizations that are focused on living collections in the natural world. It really started from this gift I have from the very beginning of having this amazing white oak in our front yard, growing up next to a field where you just, it was a part of your landscape. We honestly didn't, I didn't think very much about what I was learning from just mm-hmm. playing in the field or going out into the woods for a walk. You, you really it was just a part of my life. And I think that one of the reasons I'm in the place that I'm at and why I I really love, you know, the good fortune of my career path is that cultural organizations, environmental organizations like ours, I think can really help this process. And I I think Mm -hmm. it's changing a lot. You know, traditionally, even though cultural organizations, environmental organizations are non-traditional education paths, I think that in the past, you know, we really were just taking this position of being the expert, creating the program and providing the program. It was really doing for and not with the communities we were serving. And we weren't listening, we weren't really acknowledging this knowledge that was out there in the communities we were serving. We didn't need to be the experts. We needed to be working with the community. And I think we're we I think across Every, um, I I really, in my community, I'm hopeful because I think we're all acknowledging and recognizing that we need to do things differently. We have a long way to go, but we're really looking at, you know, in Cleveland, embracing partners, embracing places like Third Space Action Lab to help us think through Mm -hmm. and engage with the community and see and hear the experiences that we don't have. And that as we're designing and thinking forward in how our organizations serve the community, that it isn't about us being the experts and delivering knowledge out it's about us asking what the community needs and also saying who has knowledge that we actually can help share and so i think um, our programs are changing and you know one of the ways i'm thinking about the audience today too and one of the ways that we can really continue to learn is come to our spaces Tell us what we're doing that's work working for you, but also we have to be so aware of listening and allowing feedback and questions, mm. and you know help us know what we could be doing better, what we could be doing differently. Mm. So, um, I, and I think there, Cleveland is rich with not just Holden Forest and Gardens, the Arboretum, and the Botanical Garden, but Metro Parks and National yeah. Park you know, Lake Erie, Lake (laughs) Erie. There's so many resources. There's so many gifts here that we can be accessing and it's just opening that door once and, and inviting conversation in. And we invite everyone here to help us understand what knowledge we can help share.
0: Yes. And, you know, you really touched on some of that right there about, you know, Robin, your book is really at its core, a book about reciprocity and gratitude which is something that is kind of inherent to indigenous ways of being, um, even right down to the language. I mean, You had mentioned in your right. book, of trying to learn the Potawatomi language. And I also am trying to learn Anishinaabemowin and it's, it is difficult because it is predominantly verbs, right? We it's about talking, how we do things, right? Not nouns and things that are owned or, or assigned a gender. <laughs> and it's a very different way of talking. And so we also saw kind of the reciprocity and the gratitude. And also you talk a lot about the honorable harvest in your book. And we saw that all come together in the chapter where you were learning how to create Black Ash Baskets by uh, the Pigeon family, John Pigeon, who also is the same guy who taught me uh, when I was over at um, Michigan State. Uh, I'm, I'm a Michigan grad, but we collaborated with the student group at Michigan State, and I also learned from John Pigeon. So I have a, a very serious connection with you in that book, and it was a, a great joy to see that covered. And um, what does reciprocity and gratitude mean to Indigenous communities? And my follow-up question to that, really quickly, is: Do we see that outside of Indigenous communities?
1: Mm, mm. thank you, thank you for that question and for for bringing John Pigeon as a wonderful teacher of exactly some of the things that you're talking about of, mm-hmm. of reciprocity and and gratitude toward the plants and This relates so entirely to Jill's comments and your question about how do we decolonize plant knowledge, and it has to do with this centering of reciprocity. And gratitude as a way of relating to to plants, and and I think about I'm going to answer this question in a way through our shared experience of of learning to um, work with wisguk with with yes. with black ash, um, because in order for gratitude and reciprocity to be centered in our experience of plants. It requires that we think about those plants not as objects, as specimens in a garden, but as beings, as persons, as as teachers who have something to to offer us, as gift-givers themselves. And so that's the cultural assumption um, behind reciprocity and gratitude: is the recognition of the personhood of of those plants. That that whether it be a basket or or strawberries or potatoes from your garden. Um, These are the lives of other beings that are being generously laid before us so that we could live. It is an exchange of of life. And so, you know, when we think about these as ethical or, or spiritual teachings, they absolutely are. But in the Western worldview, we separate spirit and matter, right? We keep them on opposite sides of our plates so they don't touch. Um, mm-hmm. But in in indigenous thought, matter and spirit are are constantly dancing with one another. So our reciprocity with a black ash basket is not only spiritual, um, but it's physical. That we don't waste anything that that tree gives us. We offer our thanks to that tree with the promise that we will essentially repay the debt of, of the gift of, of that tree. Um, it's the essence of relationship of, Mm -hmm. of, of a give and a take, not just always taking. And Mm -hmm. it, it makes our engagement with plants. You know, rich and satisfying because you're not just taking a thing, you're creating a relationship with another being. And uh, it it makes you feel like you belong in the world, Um, not that it belongs to you.
0: Exactly. And I remember you saying that uh, killing a who demands more respect than an it right? So when you have uh, that personhood of of the plant, Um, and we actually covered a little bit of this. We had um, Dr. Kelsey Leonard as one of our keynote speakers for the state of Great Lakes. And for those of you who don't know, she's a water protector and professor as well. And she has been advocating for the personhood of water. And we had covered that in a prior forum here at City Club. And a lot of folks, this, the idea of Extending personhood to water was this very abstract dia, idea, but we do it all the time in, in, in kind of a capitalist society. We've extended personhood to businesses, uh, okay. and there was a Supreme okay. Court case over that. Um, so it's not really as abstract as an idea as folks make it out to be. Um, and I guess my my, and I do want to say too the the portion of your book where it, it extends to after the the harvest too, when you were making the black ash baskets. And you had the slivers of the, the the black ash strips, and they were starting to fall over the ground. And people were kind of stepping on them. And he halted the whole thing, okay. saying, "Stop! You know that is someone that, that that tree has given its life for you. We need to pick those up, and saved them right for the the next project that that we were that you guys had. And I, I really think that that's kind of an example. And did that whole chapter really tie together what reciprocity meant? Um, and then, Jill, I wanted to turn this to you really quick. Uh, you had mentioned in our conversations that nature is all around us, even in urban environments. So I, I consider myself an urban native. <laughs> uh, I, I wear that badge proudly. But a lot of folks, native and non-native, uh, don't really know or, or see like that reciprocity or that honorable harvest um, and that gratitude um, Day to day, they they feel like that is something that's outside in like rural areas. Um, how can we be better at that here in the city?
2: Yeah, sure. You know, I think the urban environment is really challenging. There are there are so many distractions, and it, and it, it is really challenging to see. And I'm gonna one of the conversations, Robin, I mentioned this to you right before we started today, that the chapter in the book about the salamanders crossing the road and, you know, you bringing them to safety on the other side. And I had my own brief encounter with being able to, the weather didn't quite work, but I I got to see a little peek of that process with salamanders crossing a road on um, some of the property near the arboretum. And what that makes me think about is that the reason that's so amazing is it's like this, it's like Spikes wonder, right? What a mystery. How does this happen? How do they know where to go? And I think what we're missing so often and getting to that place of gratitude is how in this, how in an urban environment where it's sometimes hard to even see nature, do we start to really also instill that sense of wonder? Because once we can bring that wonder To the question, that's I think when we start to feel it and it comes to that spiritual, that heart place, right? Like I I can feel it within me, where is this coming from? But you know, along with that distraction, I think the biggest thing is for us to get to notice it first and and close to my heart is trees. And I think with all that we've seen in um, things like emerald ash borer, even Dutch elm disease coming through, we didn't notice the trees in our urban environment or our suburban environment until they started going away and then we figured out that that marker of our home or those birds that we always heard singing in the morning weren't quite there as often that that's gone and i think what we're realizing is we have to start calling more attention to that and um you know there's some really great work that's being done to encourage people to figure out how they can make their own small steps and some of this came even during the pandemic, as challenging as that was, there was a huge growth in the number of people choosing to plant even small little vegetable gardens, maybe a potted garden on their doorstep. And again, it's that thing of creating, and then I'm seeing, and I can actually grow this amazing plant and how, even if it's, you know, just a small little herb bed, like I can grow this and then I can see that it gives back to me and that if I nurture it, it grows even more and it can continue. And I think it's this, it's, these small steps that we can take. And you know, one of the programs that we're working with right now is a, our People for Trees program, which really encourages individuals to make a pledge to plant a tree either in their backyard or maybe in a park near them or at their local school or you know, wherever, th- th- an important place for them. And that's the way we could figure out with the sort of talking to the members and donors who we know already have an affinity connection to nature. It can be really daunting if we think about climate change or in, in Cleveland, the daunting task of reforesting our city with hundreds of thousands of trees. You don't even know where to begin. Yeah. But if we begin by saying you can do this, that one tree in your backyard, and it can be lots and then lots of individuals doing that, then it becomes personal. It becomes mm-hmm. my backyard, my park, my neighborhood. And you can then nurture that and build that relationship. I think the harder part is if we just start... If we tell people what they should be doing or just calling out like the sirens, you know, of climate change going off instead, it's like, let's give you something that you can hold and grow or plant or touch the earth. And I think you can do that one tree in your backyard, mm-hmm. you know, something, you yeah. know, or down the street if you don't have that space. So I think it's starting yeah. at that beginning.
0: Robin, did you want to comment on uh, urban spaces?
1: <laughs> no. Most
0: natives live off res, right? Most natives, you know, you, you don't. I think there's a huge population of of Native Americans in a lot of urban cities in the Great Lakes area. Do, is there, do you want to
1: comment on that? Absolutely. I think this is one of the questions that I get asked the most is to say, well, I understand how I might practice reciprocity when I live on the land. Um, yeah. And, and I wish I did, but I don't, say people. So how could I practice reciprocity when I live in the heart of the city? Greening those spaces in the ways that Jill has, has suggested is essential, right? Yeah. Um, and and issues associated with with what's being called tree justice as mm-hmm. well. When we look at the distribution of trees and plants in in cities, we see they are absolutely um, uh, distributed in in unequal ways. That mm-hmm. that it's wealthy, affluent neighborhoods who have lots of green space, and and um, and and underprivileged, as we might say neighborhoods, are underprivileged in the privilege of trees. Um, the other thing that I want to say about that is absolutely getting your hands in the ground with rooftop gardens and, and and urban gardens and trees in your backyard and street trees, all of those things. But I also want to bring to mind that in the city, one of the gifts of living in the city is dialogue is political action, is conversation. So you may not be able to reciprocate the gifts of land on the land, but you can reciprocate through activism. You can reciprocate with engaging with communities and creating political movements in support of of greening cities, in greening everywhere. Um, So don't think that Reciprocity has to necessarily be a one-for-one hands-in-the-soil. Um, it can be activism on 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 behalf of of environmental movements, and and that's something that that cities are really really good at, and and can be a currency of of, of reciprocity as well. Is
0: really is that key to changing the sustainability and environment, movements reciprocity Absolutely. and personhood?
1: Absolutely, I think so. Um,
0: And it it cannot be done, you think, until we start embracing that type of uh, mantra.
1: You know, Cynthia, I think about that question a lot of the sequence. I wouldn't say it can't be done. Um, But what we're talking about is a shift in worldview toward the personhood of living beings. And that is so antithetical to the dominant society's worldview that it's going to take a long time. the ethical shifts take a long time. And I think that's the role of law and policy, is, is in a sense to be the stopgaps, to say, until we have an ethical and worldview shift, we'll use the law. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a, a right sequence. But at the same time, I think about how laws need, you know, they need a lot of time to change and evolve too. But <laughs> ethical shift. Can be an individual choice. You know, I may not be able to change a policy or, or dismantle extractive capitalism, but I can change how I think. I can choose to regard the world as the gifts from other living pe- persons hmm. and adjust my whole way of being with that sense of ecological compassion and justice. And if we each do that, it has as big an effect as each of us planting a tree mm-hmm. in, in, in in the land. It, it's physical and ethical at the same time.
0: You mentioned capitalism, and that's actually a great segue into my next question. And in your book, you mentioned Wendigo. And this is a story I learned as a, as a young kid. Um, would you mind sharing exactly what Wendigo is? And um, And do you think we can use capitalism to combat Enviro changes in. Can we have a capitalist economy to defeat Windigo?
1: Mm. Well, let me start with with the easier question.
0: <laughs> what what is
1: you, which is who is Windigo? Um, Windigo is a is a um, being a um, of. Anishinaabe cultures and represented in other ways in other cultures, Windigo is understood as a being, a monstrous being, a mythic being who um, is always, always hungry. And the more he eats, the more he consumes, the hungrier he gets. He is a frenzy of consumption. In a lot of the old stories, this takes. Um, the form of destroying people of, of 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 cannibalism of of eating up everything so that there's nothing left for anyone else and this is deemed monstrous by our culture we tell those stories because that kind of self-centered illness of overconsumption endangers all life human life mm-hmm. and the lives of all of our relatives it is held up as monstrous mm-hmm. And in Western society, there are forces and worldviews that hold that up as good. Get as much as you can, be as rich as you can, accumulate more than your neighbor. What Anishinaabe people view as monstrous is held up as a good in, in Western society. And I think that that is fueled by extractive, exploitive capitalism for sure. Capitalism in a sense gives permission and praise to the windigo. And here we are.
0: Do you think we, we can defeat windigo with a capitalist society? Is it possible?
1: I I think that fundamentally if we think about capitalism in a sense as as f- to put it in a really f- uh, simplistic frame that the value of a forest is 0 until it's cut down and turned into Mm -hmm. timber or lumber, Um, that the world is natural resources, not relatives. Um, That essence of capitalism undermines our moves towards sustainability. Mm -hmm. Are there um, models out there for capitalist market-driven economies that, that don't have that extractive base? There are. And there is an emerging movement toward um, gift economies as, as yeah. well. So there's some very creative thinking going on about how to work within a market um, capitalism in order to make it um, less rapacious. Um, mm-hmm. But but I I can't really answer the question as to whether <laughs> whether capitalism um, yeah have yeah. those solutions I.
0: You would you would solve all of the world's problems yeah. <laughs> in that
2: moment, at least in this right. country. Um, you know, Cynthia, can I yeah, sure go ahead? Can I in? You know, I was thinking about um that question and I, I can't answer the big question either, except, you know, this idea of reciprocity, and I'm wondering too if what we need to start thinking about is like how we meet people where they're at. Because you know this idea of you know, activism and, and changing that ethical consideration, it's starting by really understanding that I would like to think yeah. that everyone thinks like me, but that's just not the case so that they're as bought in to you know my beliefs in in, the, you know, in partnership with the natural world. But instead, you know I, I think some of the things we're seeing in the world we work in is people that have forested lands and they may have them that because they're, um, they want to sort of, you know, as part of their economic income comes from timbering or harvesting, you know, there, and this goes back to, to things that, you know, Robin and, and would be much more familiar with, but there are ways that you do need to be managing those forests. And we're, we're working at, you know, at, especially at the Arboretum campus to say, okay, we have we have a working woods project and it's really demonstrating to private landowners how you can manage your 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 woodlot yourself. Mm-hmm. So you might just want it for the beauty and for the wildlife and or maybe to grow food and sustenance. But if you want to timber on your land, a, it's healthy to manage your forest and how we can teach people to do that so that it's not going in and taking out, all of the forest that they have on their lot or all of the wood, or be, or falling prey to, to predator logging you know companies but instead working with them to mm-hmm. say look we're not working you know against each other let's find out what you need and what you want and how that can work with what the forest needs right. and i think having those conversations starting with where they're at and again it's all listening asking questions and then saying how can we do this together for the law, and we all know that managing it appropriately, even if it's for timber, you manage it right, you got a hundred years with that that forest moving forward, which is beneficial to yes. all. So I yes. think it's that halfway. So I, it. oh go, go ahead.
1: ahead. <laughs> I I just wanted to celebrate what what you're saying, Jill, and hold up an example from Indian Country. Um, if we look at this this notion that that. Um, it's one thing or the other um, is is a, is a false dichotomy. You look at the management of the forests of the Menominee Nation in Wisconsin, who mm-hmm. are held up all over the planet as an example of, of sustainable forestry. And they support their community on timber revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, but you go into that forest, which has been productive since time immemorial, because they're using a combination of traditional... Indigenous knowledge and Western scientific tools to manage that forest for economic return, but for cultural Mm -hmm. resources, for ecological resources at the same time. So it's a it's a brilliant example of we don't have to say one thing or the other that we could have both if if we manage with with respect and and in accordance with the principles of the Honorable Harvest.
0: Yes, agreed, a thousand percent. So I do want to make sure that we give uh, some chance for our, our folks to come in for conversations, and um, in a few minutes we will turn to your questions. And if you have any questions for Robin Wall Kimmerer or Jill Kosky, please text them to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. That's three three zero five four one five seven nine four. And you can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will try to work those in. Um, I do already have like a whole bunch of questions. I have so many other questions for you, Robin and Jill, but I'm gonna go ahead and pivot over here to our, um, our audience questions. And the first one that I have here is how can we balance and incorporate the language of indigenous knowledge and good medicine into the professional world so that it becomes more normative to give plants and animals and land personhood? And I'll start with you, Robin. How can we bring in indigenous language uh, to, to, to make to normalize how we talk about uh, the land around us?
1: Mm. Um, I face this challenge a lot in my own teaching, for example, when I'm I'm teaching um, students of ecology, conservation, natural resources, is how do we start shifting that paradigm from object to subject? Um, And language is key. Um, It can be as simple as referring to um, a a plant, let's say, um, as someone, not as something um, as, as a being, not, not as a thing. And that opens a student's or anyone's mind to, Oh, wait, you're thinking about that being rather differently, that it's not just an object and growing out of the, the chapter in, um, braiding sweetgrass that discusses this, that you've mentioned, um, the the grammar of animacy. I've actually been doing some uh, experiments with um, changing language. What if we had a way to speak of the living world other than it because in English we have this peculiar grammar right that we refer to each other respectfully I would never say of, of you oh it's asking the most interesting questions um you know that would be so rude I would steal your your personhood I'd make you into just a thing if I called mm-hmm. you it but we have no problem calling pine trees it's. it's in fact we have to we have no other way English, imprisons us in objectifying nature by its very grammatical structure. And so working with one of my language teachers, I thought, how could we animate and bring respect into the English language um, by getting rid of it? And um, the, th- through my work with my with my uh, teacher, the word means a, a being of the earth. Just a being, not, not naming what species, but a being, not a thing. And uh, so out of that word Bamadisi Aki, Aki, meaning the earth, we talked about that little sound, that little morpheme at the end of the word ki. And could we use that as a pronoun for speaking respectfully of the personhood of nature? That we would say of that of that. Pine tree, not key is growing um, at the edge of the sand. Or not it, but key is growing at the edge of the sand dune. Um, so it's a marker, a linguistic marker that says, "I do not consider that tree to be an object. I, mm-hmm. I consider that tree to be a being." And in playing with that and having working with my students to see how does it work, could you could you adopt this? Um, we also came up with the plural for that. And as you know, studying Anishinaabe, <laughs> more and yourself, um, yep. one of the ways that uh we plural pluralize inanimate things is by adding an N. What if we add an N to Ki? We get K-I-N, we get kin, mm-hmm. we get to speak of the living world as our relatives, not as as our possessions. Yep. And I find those those two pronouns, key ki and kin, to be powerful ways to stop and and remind ourselves that we're talking about persons, not about mm. things. Try it. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I kind of feel like
0: this is moving into the next question that I we have from the uh, our viewers here. They say, "Is there something about womanhood, being a woman, that is supporting this worldview?" And I think they're talking about reciprocity, honorable harvest, uh, etc. She says, "I'm a woman, noticing that you three are women. Uh, we have two Anishinaabeques here too." <laughs> So, uh, Robin, I'll let you tackle that one. Is there something about being a woman that uh, contributes to reciprocity? I immediately think of Sky Woman.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Um, what th- this question has has such depth and, and 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 roots in what a lot of philosophers have called the feminine worldview or 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 the divine feminine. This notion that um, that one of the most important currencies and energies that we have is not domination and possession, but relationship, relationship and, and, and reciprocity that um, the, that there, that this is a oftentimes thought of as a, as a conventionally feminine perspective of nurture and, and, and regard for, for um, all beings in a, in a more distributed kind of way. Um, I want to say at the outset that that is part of women's wisdom, part of women's way of being in the world, biologically, culturally, philosophically, but that that way of being is also open to everyone Um, and that that women are often carriers of this way of being and teachers of this way of being so that it moves through our, our communities as well. Jill, what do you think? Yeah, Jill. You
2: know, <laughs> I, it, it, my answer, it sort of ties to this question and some things that were sparked, Robin, by your answer to the first question and that, you know, it could be that so our social constructs, right, how we were raised, that somehow this does fit in and it doesn't need to, but more right now in this world of womanhood. I understand that. But then I was thinking, even in the first question, and your 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 question about language, Cynthia, it's I was thinking about how the next generation is what we always need to be thinking about, and who's coming after, and what we're what we're leaving, and I was I'm interested in this idea of if we're going to change how we talk about and how we engage with plants, and that I'm. I'm plants aren't, they're not it's like, it's so interesting to me to re, if I really think about that, they're living, they're living beings. And it, it, it is really challenging to describe a plant as an it or a tree mm-hmm. as an it. Um, when I think of the life within them and I was like, you know, where we could start is children are so open and absorbing all of those languages. And the more I was like, I'm suddenly thinking, what can we do as an organization to start bringing in some of that you know, the work you're doing, Robin, where you said, you know, you're practicing, like figuring out this language idea, like wouldn't it be so interesting to start testing that through the programming that we're doing and how we're communicating and talking with the children that come in here as we're talking to them about plants? Are we checking ourselves and how are we as an organization talking about these living creatures that we are all so entirely supportive of, but that language is so important. And then I was thinking about that just related to this womanhood question, because it also is about, it doesn't have to be just about womanhood. It, it's this way of thinking, as you were describing, Robin, is is for anyone. There's no, it doesn't, it's not exclusive or it doesn't have to be. And I'm, I'm thinking we have so much opportunity and power. And I think I'm actually sort of seeing this in, generate, you know, my kids and, and younger generations that I think there's a much greater openness. I think I, I feel really hopeful that there's even more opportunity to start moving some of the concepts that, you know, Robin has been sharing today forward. Um, I think it's shifting, but I think we can get there, but we just, boy, it takes an awareness to think about not describing or using the word it to describe mm-hmm. a living creature. Yeah. or a lake, and thinking about your question, Cynthia, all the way back to personhood for Lake Erie.
0: Right, exactly, right. exactly. Um, our next question is from, uh, it looks like a uh, urban studies student at Cleveland State University. They have a passion for environmental justice and greening cities. And they're saying that they have a hard time bridging the gap in conversations with people in their field. So he, he or she asks, how do we stress the importance of recognizing the personhood of our natural environment to people that objectify it within the field? How do we speak their language? Send this to Robin. <laughs> mm.
1: um, it's it's such an important question, and I think that oftentimes the approach that I have found working in in spaces where there's deep skepticism and indeed. Complete unawareness of the notion of personhood um, is to always meet people where they are. Mm. Um, meet people where they are and then move them someplace different, hopefully. <laughs> um, and and to really engage with someone about, well, let's think about this for a second. Um, challenge them in to say well if you're thinking about this tree or this this, this plant or, or 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 it doesn't have to be plants animals as as well as a thing let's talk about that um in what ways what is your relationship to this tree or to this land or to this lake um is do you feel that you own this lake is this lake property um does it belong to you or do you belong to it is is often I think a good initial approach and when people really stop and consider um I think the the conversation can evolve in a, in a really powerful direction because when we get out of the the trap of itting the world and say well let's question that assumption almost everybody will recount. An experience with the lake where they perceived it and experienced it as a living being, um, and and that personal experience is the doorway through which legal change for rights mm-hmm. of nature happens through ethical change um, as 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 well.
2: I know. Oh, go ahead, Jill. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I I believe. Well, and this is again in my bubble world of gardens and arboretums and trees, you know, I always, I'm always so amazed that when you talk to someone about why are you connected or why are you engaged in environmental work, there's usually a very personal story and it's a positive personal story. Like I have a relationship, you know, from when I was a child playing in a field or going out to the woods or the oak tree in my front yard or the strawberries. But what I also have learned and, and especially I think when we're thinking about well, anyone, anyway, it could be urban communities, but it could be anyone's connection with nature, is that this is my personal experience as a positive one, but it's so important to ask questions because what we don't know is someone might have a not so positive experience or a negative experience with with nature, whatever that may be. And, and you know, there are many ways and reasons for that, but I, I think it starts with that idea of it's asking questions and again, it's meeting them where they're at, as Robin said, and I, I think I just always have to remember that someone's experience not, my, isn't my own. And I have to make sure I understand that they could have a very negative circumstance in their life that I'm not aware of that is affecting their relationship with that world around them.
0: Yeah, and I want to add to this too. Lake Erie, I believe, if we had a forum about access to, to waterfront, I believe Lake Erie is one of the longest stretches of lakefront or waterfront mm. that is privately owned. So that really sets the tone with how we interact with our water, right? Mm-hmm. Has there been movements, Robin, that you've seen around um, other parts of the world? I know there is here locally to try and um, make some of that lakefront and waterfront more accessible to the public. Have you seen that being uh, really effective at kind of getting that personhood back?
1: I, you know, I couldn't cite a, a specific example, um, but in those places where people have access to relationship, with living landscapes, I think there is a a fierce protectiveness that comes from from that personal relationship, and if your access to a lake is blocked off by personal property, by private property, um, that disenfranchises you um, from the gifts of the earth and 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 public. Spaces can be incredibly important in fostering um, this kind mm. of connection. It's it's a really important issue of justice, of of, of access to to the land as medicine, um, mm. and uh, and I think it needs to be a, a policy priority of of nature for all. Um, mm. And to Jill's really good point that pe- diff- there are different experiences of nature that might be positive in nature. <laughs> you know, problematic as that is. Um, and one of the one of the pieces of common ground that that I think can really transform relationships and open people to relationship is food. Um, you know, oh, yeah. the landscapes that are rich in berries. There is nothing more friendly and um, cementing of relationship to land, I think. <laughs> Then berry picking. I actually have this notion that berry grounds, berry picking areas ought to be a human right. Um, and, that it, and that berry picking is medicine, um, not only for your body, but how if you want to experience the world as gifts from other beings, to me, the fastest way is Picking berries, mm. so you know, let's let's make the lakeshore of Lake Erie public, and um, turn it into a berry garden. Berry oh, garden, <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing?
2: Yeah. Robin, that Absolutely. comment is just so timely. Yesterday, and this really happened in while I was making my lunch, getting my lunch at the arboretum. I had the longest. I had a long conversation with one of my colleagues. We were talking about blueberries because they were eating store bought blueberries, and then we both talked about. Our experience, I grew, when I grew up, there was, we had a camp in, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And I remember I talked about going blueberry picking with my parents and picking really tiny, amazing little blueberries. And we both had these experiences to share. And you're right, it berries, it there's something really amazing about <laughs> just really a timely conversation yesterday.
1: And you know to our um conversation about the power of language in Anishinaabemowin as, as as Cynthia can attest the word for berry min is the same root word as the word for gift um, you know <laughs> it's like there you have it <laughs> mm-hmm. if Would've we meant. want to experience the world as gift get to know berries. And, you know, I'm serious about that as a transformative practice of of public lands for berry picking.
0: The next question we have is uh, from Twitter. It says, we haven't mentioned the well-regarded issue of time scales in indigenous cultures. How best can we change our culture that sees progress in quarters of a year? (laughs) Robin, I'll let you tackle that one first. (laughs)
1: If we think of, you know, to try and diagnose in a way, where does the bad medicine lie? Um, It's in short-term thinking. It's in short-term thinking of the hyper-individualism of our society that says that good flows when individuals um, have the highest Possible return on investment, um, and um, of course we contrast that in a, in a deep way with what has been called seven generations thinking um, of the indigenous worldview. That that what we really need to be thinking about is what is the impact of our decision and our lifestyles on our children, on our grandchildren, and on those beings who are yet to come. It's a very future-focused thinking that is not grounded in how do I benefit, but how do we benefit. Um, short-term thinking is very much tied up with hyper-individualism, whereas long-term thinking is about the flourishing of of, of our lives, collectively speaking. I think that's where the, the, the real healing needs to take place. Mm-hmm. And why capitalism is problematic as a result,
2: you know, and why climate change—it it, it didn't happen overnight. And even if I think about going back to you know trees and plants, this is a long-term game. You know, you don't plant a tree and you you don't experience the ultimate benefits. It's twenty. I mean, the best benefits are going to come from decades, right? Decades long, and and I think it's a really interesting challenge to think about how we're going to address the challenges we need to when it comes to climate change in the natural world around us when there's not a quarterly fix or an annual fix to that issue and it's also about investing not in ourselves but in the next you know the future generation and that seven. that's that's a
0: leap yeah seven generations you talked about that a little bit right yeah. in your book too yeah um so i have a, a question here from the audience as well, it says, how do you feel, how do you deal with, this is very relevant actually to the the time that we're, we're all experiencing with the rise in, in mental health issues and, and feeling of hopelessness. How do you deal with feelings of hopelessness with regards to the current environmental issues? Oftentimes it seems like individual efforts are barely scratching the tip of the iceberg. Robin, do you wanna start?
1: Sure. And there are really two very important insights in the questioner's framing of that question. Let's we'll we'll get to the issue of hopelessness in just one second, but the issue of individual action. When you think, well, how is my individual action going to do anything at all? Mm-hmm. Yes, we each have to plant trees. Yes, we have to. Um do the the individual actions that we're talking about. But the truth of the matter is is that all of those individual actions collectively make a difference, but are a drop in the bucket compared to the subsidized destruction of the planet that's going on at the corporate and and governmental levels. Um, And our individual actions, however virtuous and important they may be, are not going to get us there. We need system change. We yeah. need dramatic investment at a very large scale um, in these nature-based solutions and in, in and in cultural shifts. Um, so when we think about how do we invest our efforts, it needs to be at the level of, of, of system change um, as well as our, our, our individual actions. And that is, of course, tied to this question of how do we maintain a sense of forward momentum and continue to invest in in the future, right? Um, against this this backdrop, it's the question of, of, of hope. And the way that I like to think about this is that hope has, that's pretty complicated framing of what hope really means. Is it optimistic? Is it... Um, What I like to say is I don't know about hope, but I do know about love. Mm -hmm. And it is a failure to have passionately loved the world enough that has us where we are today. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is love for the natural world as well as love for one another and for future generations that move us forward. And the grief that we feel at, at ecological damage has to be embraced because that grief is a measure of how much we love. And if we set that grief aside and pretend it's not there, we are we are not engaging our healing powers of love. Um, um, we have to feel that grief and let it activate our love to do system change, to do individual change. Um, and, and so... You know, I think about this in terms of, I've heard people say, well, we're we're, we're basically lost. You know, we, we can't fix this. There's no healing here. Well, when someone you love is really ill, is really compromised, do you just throw up your hands and walk away and say, you know, I'm not going to engage anymore? Of course not our natural human impulse is to love more, to cherish more, to heal more. And I think that that's what we need to do mm-hmm. is, is to unleash our, our love for the world and turn it into healing. Yes.
0: We had a couple of questions, we're, we're nearing time here and we had actually a number of questions come in asking about resources, other books on um, indigenous knowledge, Particularly around sustainability, water rights, um, and as well as things that they can use in their classrooms. Um, this is K through 12 classrooms. Uh, do you have any? Do you have any suggestions uh, for these viewers that uh, we're curious how else they can um, uh, become engaged?
1: Oh well, that that is a wonderful question, and I celebrate the fact that you're asking it to say, okay, how do I learn more? And and your question from K 12 all the way to to. Um, uh, activated citizens is is a big one um what i i guess what i would want to say generically speaking is there are amazing writers problem solvers creative thinkers out there and um from from many different cultural backgrounds and many and in, indigenous leaders in 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 this regard um and and i i would just say go exploring there're too many to list yeah
0: Jill, do you have any recommendations?
2: Not top of mind. So, but um, (laughs) I, yeah, I I don't, I don't want to, you know, but I'd be, you know, I was thinking I can, I can probably access some resources and we can think about it, but um, yeah.
0: I would recommend for those of you who are tuning in, especially those of you who are tweeting this, uh, giving these questions via Twitter, uh, do an audit of your, um, your, who you following, like audit of your social media, start finding those Indigenous thought leaders, start finding those um, Indigenous academics, follow those um, Indigenous research centers that are found all across the nation, and just give them a follow. Have that news hit your newsfeed the very much the same way you get all of your other news and all of your other book recommendations, the information will follow. Um, uh, I really want to give a one last question to Robin before we wrap up here, and um, we had a question come in from a viewer. Uh, how are you feeling moving forward? You had mentioned in your book um, that we're at the crossroads. Uh, one side is the grassy um, green side and the other side is the scorched stone. Um, How are you feeling optimistically? We just finished the the UN Climate Change uh, Summit where we had one of the largest cohorts of indigenous youth um, advocating on behalf of of Earth. Um, You know, coming off of that, how are you feeling now?
1: I am feeling heartened and encouraged at the level of grassroots cultural change. This notion of that we haven't loved the Earth enough, I feel in, in, in the responses that I've gotten in, in my own work and in the community more broadly, I am buoyed up by the kind of love and loving responses, creative responses. It's saying, well, how can I love the land better? And uh, there's so many examples of people saying, well, if our leaders won't lead, I will. I'm going to do this. Um, and I'm very heartened by that. I am disheartened by the political leadership and the lack thereof um which makes it all the more important that we take that um responsibility as citizens to be good good medicine and and encourage our leaders to follow us
0: absolutely all right. And I, so we had so many questions come in. I also had so many questions, but we are at time. And thank you both, Robin and Jill, for spending time with us today. And thank you all for joining us for today's virtual forum featuring Jill Kosky, President and Chief Executive Officer at Holden Forest and Gardens, and Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of the New York Times best-selling book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Want to read the book? You can buy it local at MaxVax. City Club members are eligible for a 20% discount on the purchase of this book. Email info at cityclub.org for more details. Today's forum was in partnership with Holden Forest and Gardens and part of the National Endowment for the Arts, Big Read Northeast Ohio at Kent State University. Thank you as well to our community partner, the Lake Erie Native American Council. This forum is part of our author and conversation series sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, and our Sustainable Northeast Ohio series sponsored by Bank of America. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free thanks to generous support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. We are grateful to all of our sponsors for their support. Be sure to join us tomorrow, Friday 14th. Andy Chow with the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau will be speaking with Robert Paduchik, chairman of the Ohio Republican Party, and Elizabeth Walters, chairwoman of the Ohio Democratic Party, about the year ahead in Ohio politics. We just ended with a question about politics, and here we are, your opportunity to ask a question of our our chairs. This form is sold out, but you can still join the live stream at cityclub.org or tune in at 90.3 Ideastream Public Media. And we have a new form added this week. On Wednesday, January 26th at noon, we will be joined by Christy Monsi, President and CEO of the Collaborative to End Human Trafficking, and Yasmin Vafa, Executive Director of Rights for Girls. They will be talking about the intersection of race, gender, and the law as it pertains to human trafficking, a huge issue for the local and national Native American communities regarding our missing and murdered indigenous women. You can learn more about these and other forms at cityclub.org. Miigwech. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you again to Robin Welkimmer and Jill Kosky. I'm Cynthia Connolly. Our forum is now adjourned.